Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this episode I'm joined by Chris Derno who as well as taking charge of some of British Speedway's biggest events, including British Finals and Elite League Grand Finals, has also refereed at FIM level right across Europe, in fact at every major track across the continent, including at Long Track World Finals, Speedway Grand Prix qualifiers, and he's taking charge of ICE Speedway meetings as well. He's got a lot of experience to share with us, and I'm pleased to welcome him to Humans of Speedway, Chris Derno. Yeah, good evening, good evening Ian. Uh, pleasure to talk to you tonight. So, what are you up to at the moment? Because you're, you're a well-known name on the refereeing circuit. People will have seen your your name in the program over over many years. But uh, where are you at at this at this moment in your career and uh, your involvement in Speedway? Yeah, uh, I'm probably moved into the sort of senior sphere now. Um, uh, I'm uh, still uh, a domestic referee in the UK. Um, uh, I was for a while, uh, probably about eight, nine seasons, I've I, I moved up and was at uh, FIM international level, uh, but the FIM have a, a maximum age limit of 55. And uh, when I um, uh, reached over that, normally you are, you know, that's the end of your, your career with the FIM. Uh, but I was very fortunate. Um, they liked how I worked and how I operated. And I was um, given the opportunity to become long track uh, jury secretary and so we're in all the major championships um, they employ a, a jury with a jury president a referee a local delegate and then there's a jury secretary uh, to control the meetings and so i've been maintained on specifically in the long track discipline it's where i did a lot of my um, sort of uh, uh, fim refereeing in that sphere so it's maintained my interest in uh, sort of the long track area and uh, I'm due to go out and do a long track final shortly in the next four weeks because it's all been cleared out in France. So 
uh, until they get things cleared in England. The first um, duty I've got on my calendar at the moment is to get to Morizes for the first long track final. Yeah, obviously a very unusual year for everybody concerned with Speedway. Some riders getting a little bit of action now, but uh, for, for the most part, it's uh, a complete write-off and, um, and referees no exception to that. Yeah, we're, we're no different. Um, we've uh, been sitting waiting uh, you know, intently to try and uh, hear some positive news. Uh, but uh, you know we have to follow in line with all the government rulings. We've, uh, I feel for the promoters. This has been possibly it would have been one of the best years we could have run with uh, the super weather that we've had. Some of the names that are attracted to the speedway, Robert Lambert achieving uh, his SEC championship win. There have been so many positives for the promoters this year. And then to be hit by this virus has been absolutely devastating. Yeah, not much we can do about it, but onwards and upwards for 2021. Let's turn to your story then, Chris, the life of a referee. How do you find your way into the box and why was it appealing to you? And how did you get started in the first place? I think will be the, the first question, because it's not an area of speedway that maybe people initially look at getting involved in, but... No Speedway match can go on without you. I, I used to do freelance reporting uh, involved with Speedway and I used to travel abroad an awful lot um, to watch some of the international meetings and through those periods I got to know some of the UK international referees at the time. Graham Brody is a name people will, will know and uh, Graham Reeve and I got talking to those and that maybe set a seed. Uh, and then, really, I can remember um, there was an advert in the Speedway Star where the Speedway Control Board had, had said they were looking for new referees, and that still happens today. That's how the same process. They 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 put in a, a, a sort of a a small article that they're looking for referees, and then it's to apply to the Speedway Control Board. Um, they go through the number of applications they got, and then sort of what they believe are suitable candidates. You get invited along to. Uh, the SCB offices at Rugby, where you go through uh, quite a, a detailed interview and um, sort of um, test sort of process. And that's where I, I can remember going to the interviews and not really thinking, you know, well, you know, what will happen? And it was only when I was sort of uh, given the option that uh, I was selected to start training that it all become very serious. That was way back in 2002 now. And uh, at the time, um, they chose a very strange way of training referees, though, is because they, they chose, it was 12, it was far too many trainees back in those days. Uh, we were all tripping over each other trying to train, and it became a bit like an X Factor each week, which trainee would be called. Uh, but uh, getting through that process, uh, you're allocated a track, uh, which is your training track that they, they change through your training period. And then you're given a, a mentor referee, uh, where you go around to many of his meetings and then it really is all about getting out, doing the miles and getting to as many meetings as you can because that's the only way you can train as a speedway referee. It's not like football, cricket, rugby, where you can go to lower levels. There is only our sort of level of sport that uh, we can deal with. Um, so really, you've got to get around and do the miles and uh, do the meetings. The more meetings that you see, the more experience that you get. Obviously, a mixture of um, of observing there and, and learning. But when are you finally given a chance to get involved in a meeting? When are you let loose on the buttons? How does it work and how do you make that progression through? I mean, are you drop completely in at the deep end or is it a gradual process? Well, that's where yeah, the hard, hard yards go. You, you've got to get around and you've got to get to see the referees until they've got a level of confidence with you. You know, as a referee, uh, you know, uh, 
you've got to be sure and confident that if you hand over bits of control of a meeting that um, you know the trainees of a, of a competent level that uh, you're not going to worry or you know cause problems with the meeting so generally um, for a quite a period you are going around shadowing referees trying to understand what the roles and the tasks and the responsibilities are um, and then you know learning all of the the rules the regulations and then once you get um, to know your referees and they've got a bit of uh, uh, knowledge and uh, competency that you you know you can get on that's when they can start giving you some sort of, sort of second half races and then some of the after meeting junior meetings and then you can build up and then you know once you get to a level then you know they are giving you then parts of meetings um, and uh, giving you more and more responsibility uh, access to uh, some of the team managers telephone calls to see how you handle them any pre-meeting sort of issues and incidents so it, it's all sort of a, a gradual process as you go through it's usually around a two-year cycle that it takes um, start to finish um, you're regularly tested with your mental referee at most of your meetings, written exams, uh, question papers at quite, uh, most of the meetings that you attend. Uh, and then also as you start to progress and all the re you reported on every meeting, the Speedway Control Board, uh, keep on reviewing your progress. And then when they think you're at a, a level, they start offering you new test meetings then when you're sort of given the lead and take uh, the majority of the control of the meeting. And then through that two year program, uh, you get more and more uh, sort of responsibility given to you and then given further test meetings and then again constantly monitored all the way through the training program with reports uh, until you get to a point where you, you're given the final um, test meeting where you take absolute full control and responsibility and if you get yourself through that um, you'll you will be offered uh, a position on the speedway control board of referees but the attrition rate is very, very high. We're probably over 50% of people who apply to be a referee um, don't make it through the training course. Majority, once they've taken a look at it and um, the amount of time, effort and what's involved with it, they just really say it's not for me. Um, there's a tremendous amount of travelling, um, time off work, obviously. Um, and uh, a lot of people um, see it's, it's more of a, a job than they'd ever thought or encompassed. And so um, we lose a lot of people very early on when they start understanding uh, what's demanded and involved. Um, but uh, then once you get through that period, then generally those trainees that get onto that stage, then we can work with them, develop them. And uh, we usually be able to produce um, some good referees coming through at the end. It's a very thorough process, isn't it? I think people will be quite surprised by that. I mean, you know, you, you could be a, a qualified airline pilot in the same amount of time. I mean, it is, a, it is very, very thorough indeed. But then again, it has to be, doesn't it? Because there's so much resting on your shoulders. Yeah, I was really pleasant that you should say that because I, I don't think a lot of people realise the sort of time and dedication the people put in um, if you were to say me today um, you know to go through a training program um, the the trainee probably uh, expends probably in the region of three or four thousand pounds of his own money uh, to be getting around doing all that traveling to tracks overnight stays um, uh, and that's an awful lot of dedication uh, time you know they're burning a lot of the personal holidays to be able to do that and uh, um, you know, but it, it does need that sort of time and 
duration to get through. It's a complicated sport. We have a very difficult rule book, and um, there are a lot of um, things that a referee deals with. It's not just you know the 15 heats people might imagine that a referee is involved with. Referee turns up at a meeting two hours before a meeting to go through all the uh, checking all the tracks, uh, all the licenses, the lineups. You know everything's in correct order to start a meeting. Um, uh, and probably you're also then the last person to leave the stadium as well. And so it's quite a, you know, an extended period uh, with traveling either side of it. So it, it is something that um, not too many people have got that uh, time and freedom to be able to take on board. There's a lot of learning involved, but perhaps one of the criticisms that comes from riders is the fact that referees don't have riding experience. I mean, what do you say to that argument, really, that there should be more ex-riders as as referees who who maybe know the sport in a different way? Yeah, it's. it's I'll be honest with you. We've we've always um, wanted to get uh, riders involved with refereeing. But, um, you know, once I think they have a look at it and they, they understand what's involved, the remuneration, it's very hard to sort of attract um, uh, former riders into the sport to, to become referees. Um, so uh, we would like them if we could find them. But then that is always um, the issue then that um, the referees, they, they don't have that riding experience. But uh, really, you gain your experience through um, years and years of watching meetings and incidents. And, you know, uh, you've got a, a, a library of uh, memory to refer back on to. Um, um, and it just becomes the, the more meetings that you do, the more incidents you go through, uh, you've got that experience to make the judgment calls. And when you go back to your first meeting, does that experience stand out for you when you were first let loose in charge of a meeting? <laughs> it, it, it's strange. It's, it, it's, it's yes and no, because I've got no memories of it. But obviously, it was my first meeting. I'd, uh, I'd qualified as a referee. I'd done a test meeting. My final test meeting was way up in Newcastle. And I was waiting for the result and uh, I hadn't heard anything for a while and I was beginning to get a little bit worried. And then I got a call from Graham Reeve, who was the Speedway Control Board manager at the time. And he asked me to go round to his house down in Droitwich. Uh, and uh, he said, I'm going to Swindon tonight. Uh, can you call in and see me? And I was thinking, oh, this is it. I'm going to find the news out. And I can remember knocking on his door and he opened the door and he says, put your hand out. And I put my hand out and he, and he dropped a little, what used to be a carburetor um, checking tool. And he put that into my hand and I says, what are you giving me that for? And he says, because you're a referee. And that's, <laughs> that's how I was told. So I was in the back of his car going to Swindon like a Cheshire cat. We pulled into Blunsdon Stadium and uh, then he told me, and this is your first meeting. Wow. And without <laughs> any sort of preparation or anything, it was um, Swindon versus Workington in 2002. And uh, I can still remember, wow, just being in a state of shock and having to literally go behind the grandstand, compose myself, remember all that training I'd done and uh, go in and did that meeting. But I have no recollection <laughs> of the meeting. Um, I've got to buy a video of it. I know nowadays there are people selling the old videos, but yeah, that was my first meeting. Um, it was uh, sort of a major milestone, but I think I can remember the score was very close to me, like 46, 44, but... I don't think I had too many problems, but uh, yeah, that was my very first meeting. You need to give um, Jan Steckman a call and see, see if he can sort you yeah, out with yeah, the DVD. Jan seen <laughs> I'm sure I'll be able to find a copy of that video somewhere.
<laughs> and when you think back now across your your career, what what are the sort of um, standout moments that that sort of come to mind for you? It's, it's always as you develop, you go through. Um, I can remember when I first started uh, the the um, sort of the fledgling referees, sort of your target uh, meeting. Strange enough, would be something as as small, but to me was a massive meeting. Would be Conference League riders. And I can remember within the first season or two, I got to a level where they gave me like, you know, the Conference League Riders Championship. But then you move on and uh, they're very good with the refereeing rule. They, they do try and share around the meetings if they can. And so you go through and then you get things like um, pairs finals, fours finals. I can remember doing the British Championship was a very uh, proud occasion. And then if you're lucky, you get to um, get on to um, sort of uh, playoff finals and cup finals. And especially now with the live sort of TV, they're sort of, sort of major events. Uh, and then also um, once I developed through my career, I got a very fortunate opportunity to uh, go and apply to be an FIM referee, which meant going over to Prague and doing a complete seminar with all the other um, new referees across Europe and getting selected from that and then putting onto the FAM uh, board of referees and then taking international meetings, which was uh, another element, another step. Um, I've been very privileged to be given that uh, chance. I'll never, never sort of uh, fail to recognise that, but that um, gave me some great pleasure to be able to travel all over the world in referee meetings. And perhaps when people think of, of international meetings and referee international events they're probably going to maybe think immediately of uh, speedway grand prix but that was never something that was really available to you was it yeah yeah not so much i always knew when i, I personally got into the fim level i'd, I'd very I'd, I'd almost knew before i started i wouldn't be able to get to, to the grand prix level because we'd already got two very good referees in if people remember the name jim lawrence and craig Ackerell, who's still on the uh, on the list now and so there, is, there has to be a limit that, that, you know, you knew we got two British UK referees at that level. So I knew it would be very, you know, unlikely I'd be able to get onto there. Uh, Jim retired just, it was sort of the, the my sort of final year. Um, but uh, I'd been very fortunate. I'd, I'd really got a good run on. We're doing long track finals. Uh, there was um, quite a few sort of speedway referees. They they don't feel very comfortable outside the comfort zone of the usual discipline. But when you're an FIM referee, you're doing ice speedway, grass track, sidecars. And I really did uh, sort of get involved with the long track. And I used to do a lot of the long track finals. And, um, and so I was very fortunate. You're seeing crowds out there in Germany, sort of 15, 20,000. So I was fortunate did that. I got to do the Grand Prix Challenge out in Togliati in Russia. So I, I, I was very happy with what I was able to get to and then also being able to stay on and be involved with the uh, FIM at the long track level as well as the jury secretary. So it's been very good to me. I've, I don't got any sort of regrets. I didn't get to do a Grand Prix because, uh, you know, I think uh, I had a good run anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of those meetings, you know, that they're, they're as world class as any any Grand Prix, really, aren't they? You know, the, the world long track finals and so on. I mean, they're, they're massive events. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, you've got to treat each one with equal amount of respect because once you get into that level, you know, you are in the position where you're determining world champions and world championship events. So, you know, they've all got the, uh, the equal amount of sort of added uh, prestige and, and pressure as well involved with it. 
And when you look at long track in particular, it's obviously something we don't see very much of in, in this country, but um, it's a different discipline for the riders, but a different discipline too for the, for the referees, I imagine. And the, the laps clearly a lot longer. There's more riders in there. I mean, how do you have to adjust your game as a referee to cope with that versus standard speedway at, say, Newcastle, for example? Oh yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's got slightly easier now because long track now is with five riders. But when I first started to referee, it was with six riders, and uh, it, it might sound simple to people, you know, the difference between four, five, and six riders. But it's not. Um, five is tough. Six is you're always looking everywhere around the track to make sure you've got the riders. You're counting constantly during a race to make sure you can see them. Uh, I can remember one of the first meetings. Uh, I went to out in Germany, a massive track out in Muldorf, and one of the local German referees come in and talk to me, and he offered me a pair of binoculars. <laughs> and uh, I was stunned, and he said, no, you'll need these to watch. And I thought, I can't, because if I've got a pair of binoculars, I'd only be looking in one position, and you need to have a, a view everywhere. So you just learn to uh, develop and, and make sure you've got sort of a vision all around the track. Yeah, you, it's fortunate when you do an FIM meeting, uh, you always do a practice uh, in advance, either the day before or on the morning of the meeting, so that gives you a chance to adapt to how uh, the, the controls are, the view out of the box, um, what you can see. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's just something you just have to quickly adapt to. You don't get a lot of time. You turn up and you have to be doing that meeting that weekend. And Ice Speedway, again, is, is something... Um also fairly alien to many of us in, in this country, but it's massive in certain parts of the world. And again, something completely different with obvious extra dangers uh, associated with that as well. I mean, as a referee, are there obviously further things that you need to uh, to, to check maybe before the, the meeting for, for those kind of things? Yeah, they said uh, it's today in the, in this modern world we deal with problems in high speed right now. It's, it's where the meetings can go ahead. Um, you know the the tracks need to be a, 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 you know a minimum of ten centimeters of ice to allow a meeting to go on. So the the first thing you're dealing with is whether the, the track is in sufficient um, condition. Um, some of the ice meetings are in um, stadiums with uh, man-made uh, ice surfaces, so, so they're uh, quite safe to go ahead. But then other ones, when you go to places like um, Sweden and Finland, I've refereed in, uh, you know, they are on uh, sort of uh, naturalized surfaces. And uh, some of those uh, temperatures I've refereed in, I've been refereeing in temperatures of sort of minus 25, 30. And uh, although you're in a referee's box, it doesn't get too warm. <laughs> and uh, quite often, one of the things you've got to have with you is your credit card, because in between races, you're, you're just your breath on the window of the referee's box is freezing up that between races, you're scraping the windows with your credit card so you can actually still see things. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and uh, my guest in this episode is referee Chris Derno. And Chris, before the end, is going to be taking part in Speedway Paradise as well, choosing his all-time one to seven, his all-time track, uh, probably the best one he'd like to referee from as well, of course. Um, and who would be his referee for his meeting? Um, is he going to choose himself? We'll, we'll find out before the end. Chris, though, one thing that comes with the territory is having to make difficult decisions. What are the most difficult decisions that you have to face up to as, as a referee? It is. You, you probably straight away, you, you always, people might think the biggest decisions that a referee make is during a meeting, whether you've got to exclude rider A or rider B. Uh, it's not. The biggest decision that a referee always will make is whether a meeting goes on or not. Uh, that is really puts you in a position where 
you've got a weather affected surface um you know and it's it's really is the referee's decision at the end of the day you've got to fully consider rider safety but at the same time if there is any way that a track can be um rectified and worked on and improved you know you've got to sort of also have uh, consideration for the promotion as well that uh, you know if, if at all possible you know attempts should be made and, that, and that's where you really are caught piggy in the middle where you may have one team say a home team that are keen to ride and the away team absolutely steadfast against not riding you know and then you are caught in the middle of that and have to work your way through it um, talk to the riders as much as possible ask them if there's anything that can be done that can improve the situation you know do what you can to the track you know and see if anything can be uh, done to remedy that you know and then hopefully get it to a point where you are satisfied that sufficient work has gone on that it, it would be safe to start uh, but then it is your call then and then you go back up to that box and that first race in that sort of situation your heart's in your mouth you, you know you hope you've got it right and uh, you've not caused any any problems or caused any extra uh, uh, safety risk to the riders um, but then obviously you start the meeting so that that is always for me is, is sort of the toughest decision as against you know sort of racing decisions which uh, you make your best judgment upon I suppose with racing decisions it's it's a straightforward black or white if it's in the rules or not isn't it whereas if, if a track's safe to ride there's maybe a little bit more uh, interpretation of, of, of opinion between different people on that one yeah you're always you're always watching a race um you know you're almost judging all the time you, you you're trying to um see incidents start to happen before they happen um so if, if two riders are you know in close contact you, you're always focused entirely on that and you, you're trying to um sort of understand you know quite often you think something's going to happen it doesn't happen but you know you've got an opinion of where the riders are at that position who was in the lead you know who was challenging who was uh, you know uh, in the in sort of um, contact with other riders and then you, you've just got a level of experience then that you you make a, an understanding you know what was the primary reason for the incident that happened and then make your judgment on that based on that and the rules and the regulations what about the difficult moments when it comes to keeping an eye on the racing i imagine there's some fun moments there as well oh yeah it's it, again it's it's always quite difficult when you get two races in in in, in a single heat you may have two riders battling out of the front and two at the back and it's always where you, you you glance in between the two different you know racing pairs you know and you may be focused on the sort of the leading pair and something may have happened on on the sort of the rear pair and then you've got to try and sort of analyze what you last saw where they were and uh, try and understand you know what you think caused the issue and and sort of make that judgment call i suppose as well it it depends which track you're at because they're all different uh, they all have different facilities and some have video replays and so on and some don't. I mean, is that something that would help you along a little bit further? Well, even today, it's in the rule book. We're not allowed to look at videos. Um, you know, there, there is a rule at the moment that a referee should make the call without the help of a, a video assistance. Even there are very few tacks that, that do have um, video replays. Um, I think there's from memory, you can probably, I think it's 
Birmingham and Wolverhampton. I can't think there's many of so there's not really the option anyway, but currently the rule book um, prevents us from looking at a video in a, in a normal league meeting. If you do a TV meeting, uh, then I think you're all aware we are provided with a, a monitor in the box that we can refer to. Uh, but again, we generally get the replays that the sort of uh, the public is seeing. We're not getting sort of separate sort of replays. We have to wait until they they play the replays to air, and you're sometimes not getting the replays you'd want. You always know there's there's one camera that will particularly help you. Maybe um, you know going across looking into a bend where something may have happened, and it's not always that the the director chooses to give you that view because sometimes controversy helps television. And so quite often you can make a call and then lo and behold, they'll be showing you a, a view that you've probably not seen in making your decision. Uh, but mm -hmm. I don't think, um, you know, you always have memories of, of certain meetings where there's, you think there's maybe been some um, call that's gone wrong. But I, I, do, I do feel the standard of refereeing is not too bad in this country compared. And uh, I think uh, we get the, the vast majority of the decisions correct. I'm looking at one or two of the uh, the, the stories from um, I think the, the stories from the the Speedway Star from from uh, a little while back. But um, one situation that, that presented itself that, that sort of caught the eye was um, one where you were refereeing the the Tyne Tees Trophy, um, and this was at Bruff Park. And um, going back to what you were saying about you know deciding about whether the meeting should go ahead or not, and and it ended with you reporting all twelve riders to uh, the SCB. Yeah, that was again, it was one of those occasions where, um, you know, uh, we got some poor weather and um, uh, we'd worked on the track. Uh, we'd done everything recommended of um, the riders and the consensus of opinion was they were going to go with it. Uh, and so then they went in the changing rooms and then once they got behind locked doors, uh, there was people who were speaking louder than others that uh, sort of swelled the riders into say not even you know considering allowing to have it a go even though there'd been an awful lot of track work done and so you know all we did then at that occasion if you take that course of action you know there, there will be implications with that and so um, you know they they stood by their decision refusing to ride so that was sent to um, a court of inquiry in the SCB which ruled that um, the riders uh, were um, in on an incorrect stance and I can't remember the, the punishment, but it probably would have been fines and things like that were carried out. So yeah, not a very nice thing to have happened, but uh, on that occasion, it was one of those where, you know, at least the thought was they should have at least had a look and had a go at it. And there was another story that I saw that, um, and this was quite a while back, so you'd probably only been in, in the game a, a few years, I suppose, by this point, but um, Matt Ford pleading with the authorities for you to, to be kept away from their meetings because they uh, they were out of the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, I think I had a run of meetings where I just uh, I made decisions that didn't um, sort of uh, please Matt Ford very much. I think there was a, some headline somewhere, Derno is banned from Paul. And uh, immediately what the Speedway Control Board do is they send you down straight away then. Uh, <laughs> nobody can sort of say those things. But I think, um, yeah, that was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, now uh, every time I go down to Paul now, walk straight into Matt Ford's office, he holds no to no thoughts or grudges from those sort of times. And, and so, yeah, you go through those periods where some people think, you know, they've just had a run that you've made, got some some issue against some rider or some club. But uh, I don't think there are many referees going into meetings with that sort of view. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan. And my guest in this episode is Chris Derno. 
having a bit of a referee fest in this one, talking about the rules, the regulations and life in the box. And Chris also going to get involved in Speedway Paradise at the end as well, choosing his all-time dream meeting. Find out what's involved in that. But first of all, let's have a look at some of the unusual rules. I mean, do these come up every now and again? You know, the rules that are not often applied, but they are in the rule book, and you've got to uh, you've got to go by the letter. What sort of examples can you give us, Chris? Yeah, it's, it's, I've had a few incidents in the last year or two where uh, where would it go? I had uh, I had a rider start a meet a race without his gloves. Um, and I was eagle-eyed enough to have seen that uh, he'd got himself in a pickle in between races and uh, came out in such a rush he'd come out without his gloves on. He obviously, you know, uh, we'd, uh, he, took, uh, he took part in the race and, uh, you know, he was in an unsafe condition, so he was disqualified. I've had another one where I had a strange um, uh, call from the pits that a rider who had uh, um, had a machine examined before the start of the meeting, he wasn't very happy with it. So halfway through a meeting, he decided to pull a second bite out of a, out of his van and go straight out and race on it. And obviously that had not been scrutinized and checked, had to disqualify him. And so, yeah, you do get some, some weird and wonderful ones um, where, you know, um, they're in the rule book, um, don't apply them very often, but when it happens, you, you have to go back to the black and white and apply them. Yeah, you, you've got to have the eyes in, in the back of your head, really. I mean, we, we did um, an episode recently with Shane Parker and um, we were talking about referees and he was very complimentary to you, by the way. Um, but um, he was saying that probably nowadays, because things are a little bit faster than ever they have been, that it might be worth having a, another one on the field as well as in the box. Would that be something that would help you out, do you think? Uh, anything, I always say anything that helps us to get to the correct decision is, is, is it'll be a good help, a good guide. You know, as you say, if we could have replays, uh, um, sort of, um, you know, um, anything that could sort of give us some sort of... Uh, a second view or anything like that. As long as we get the correct decision, it's a good thing in my opinion. So I'd support anything that sort of assists us. Now, I've got a bit of a mailbag for you, which is um, definitely a first. Um, the, uh, the the first one is uh, from Martin Coleman, who says, um, say hi to Chris for me. Ask him uh, how much did he enjoy watching Matty Gordon score a hat-trick in a 4-1 win at Wickham, only to be snapped online at the front row in the home end because you couldn't get a ticket for the away end. <laughs> Yeah, no, Martin. This, this is. I, I'd followed a, a football team, and as I said, I couldn't get into the the away end, so I managed to get into the uh, the home end. And there was a picture in the local paper where I was the the person directly behind a, a player celebrating that. I got a, a mugshot in a local newspaper that people picked up on and sent all the way around. So yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that was something that doesn't happen very often. Right, here's a speedway one for you. This is from uh, Ian Lapworth, who said. How much discretion does a referee have to bring all four riders back for a rerun following a crash? Sometimes it looks like a racing accident, but it seems that someone has to be excluded. The result of the meeting can hinge on such a decision. Yeah, this, this is always a, a, a tough one because I imagine he's talking is once the riders have gone around the second bend and then you, you get an incident. You know, we all talk about 50-50 incidents and that there are... You know, uh, instances that happen that um, it is very v difficult to make a decision on. 
Um, but I think the, I think majority of referees, once you've gone around the second bend, it really is sort of um, decision time. And there has been odd occasions where, you know, um, decisions have been taken to rerun a race because no fault could be attributed. But it, it's quite dangerous territory because once you do that sort of thing, it sets a massive precedent that uh, then every time there's a crash during the meeting, people will come back and say, you know, well, that, that was done on that TV meeting where on lap three, it was rerun all four. It, it sends a very sort of dangerous precedent. So it should be very, very rare occasions where there's absolutely no way you can uh, attribute blame to one rider or the other. Uh, one here from Steve Haywood, um, who says, Top man is Chris. I'm lucky enough to have worked um, with all the UK refs in the announcer's box at Berwick, and he's one of the best. I think it's quite complimentary. doesn't really require much from you. Um, one from Gary Schofield who says, Can you ask, uh, Chris, what's your favourite and least favourite tracks to referee at? And this can be anywhere, I suppose, because you, you, haven't you refereed it pretty much everywhere in Europe, all the major tracks? Yeah, I, I always try to get around. I'm, I'm, I am I am basically, I'm a big Speedway supporter as well as a referee. I still love the sport. I still go to as many meetings as I can and I travel as much as I can. Um, I'm almost like a Speedway groundhopper, as they call them in, in football terms. I, I try to get to every stadium I can. I've visited about 292, I think it is now. I want to get to 300 before I finish. Uh, but it gives you ability to get around. And even, you know, if I can travel abroad, it's a strange thing. You always try and see the local uh, uh, referee and get into the box and have a look around. But the best boxes generally are always sort of elevated boxes um, that you're up uh, in the sky where you've, you, you're looking down on the track so you can get some perspective across the track, um, you know, as riders move going down the back straight. Uh, and so you don't want boxes where, you know, you've, you've got um, people walking in front of you, which a lot of the UK boxes are that way, uh, where, you know, somebody can just sort of distract you or walk across you. So uh, the best boxes, my favourite box was always um, uh, Oxford, Oxford um, Cowley Stadium, because you were above the main grandstand looking directly down. You used to lean out of the window with the control box next year. I found that a very good view, very natural um, the Bellevue, the new Bellevue box, although it's in a good position, um, they didn't put a lot of consideration in for referees, even though it was a new stadium, because we're, we're sort of crouched. There's a, there's a window there, but the height of the window is not sort of ergonomically suitable. So you're sort of in between sort of crouching and um, leaning down to get a good view. And so every time you referee, you end up with bruises on your head as you as you stand up and bang your head on the uh, on the windowsill there. But again, it is a, it is a good view. But then you are other tracks, you know, I don't want to knock the tracks, but places like Paul, uh, where you're in the back of a grandstand, wherever there's a close finish and you've got a row of fans sitting directly out the window and they all stand up, you know, as they cross the line and I'm directly behind them. Ipswich is the same. There's, there's quite a few where we, we don't have the, the best of views. Um, there are some tracks where you're not in line with the start. Wolverhampton's a classic one. You know, you are sort of in the first bend and you are trying to make judgments on movement on the starts and close finishes. So, you know, a lot of the boxes um, that uh, we operate aren't perfect, but, uh, you know, we can't change them when we have to deal with them and react to them. But I always do like the boxes that are sort of placed on top of sort of grandstand roofs. So you've got no sort of obstructive view at all. Um, here's a message from Nigel Pearson. Uh, who says Which Chris one, is a great football manager? Well, no, this is the uh, the the commentator in this in this particular instance. Who <laughs> says, yeah, uh, Chris is a great guy. Send him my best regards, please. So consider that done. 
Jason Harold says, one of the best on the buttons is Chris, not to mention the elastic band. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, I, I can tell you a little story about Nigel Pearson then, because I'm sure he'll, he might remember this. Is um, that the, the standard referee's attire was always a, a white shirt with a tie, and there was one meeting at Wolverhampton where Nigel Pearson went out in the middle of a meeting to get his um, its usual glass of Guinness, and as he walked back into the box, he tripped over and he emptied a complete uh, glass of Guinness all over my nice white refereeing shirt. So thank you, Nigel, for that. I do remember <laughs> that day. <laughs> Unexpected hazards of the uh, of the referees' box. <laughs> um, one from um, Speedway Social. Um, and this was, um, I think this was a discussion they were having uh, based on something that happened in a, a Polish meeting recently. And it's just, I think it's a general scenario that often happens. But if yellow moves, for example, and then red touches the tapes, was it already a false start by the time red touched them because of yellow's movement? Yeah, it's, it's quite debatable, um, the, these sort of things at the starts at the moment. Um, so, yeah, there, there are many ways you can look at it because um, you, a, a rider doesn't have to touch the tapes to be disqualified. Uh, you can disqualify a rider for effectively delaying the start uh, because you've had to, um, you know, you, you're conscious that there was some slight movements to delay raising the tapes. And so you can disqualify that rider for being the cause. Um, but uh, when you're in that sort of situation, I know it, it, it upsets a lot of people, but, you know, the rules are the rider shouldn't move before the start. So, you know, a rider, I know it is very difficult. They're on tender edges uh, with the clutches and everything, but they, they shouldn't really uh, attempt to start a race due to, you know, another rider moving. And in that incident, I can see... I watched it myself. Um, the guy off the inside gate did a slight nudge, settled that that had got the guy off the second gate to go through. So I know what the referee did in that that case. You know, he disqualified the actual tape toucher, and uh, which was unfortunately the, the the second person to move. And then he took the additional action of warning the rider that had moved. So he got some sort of punishment for what he'd done. But I, I can see it's a, a difficult call, and there's uh, there's there's two views on that. But I think um, in Poland, in that occasion, the referee just went with the rule book. It was the rider that touched the tapes that he disqualified. If he hadn't have touched the tapes and they had both been moving, would that be a reason, if you'd let the tapes go, would that be a reason to call it all back for an unsatisfactory yeah. start? Or? Yeah, it's something like that, yeah. You know, I think um, a lot of referees now, we we, we sort of, in, in the past, we used to hit the red lights as soon as you saw, saw movement out of the starts now. But I think a lot of referees now, they, they sort of, if they do see some sort of movement, you, you take a measured judgment because quite often if somebody has gambled at the start, they've double clutched, you know, they thought they're going to go and they've pulled the clutch back in and when the tapes go, they move, but then they suddenly get punished there at the back of the field going into the first corner. So I think a lot of referees now, they, they do sort of leave um, stopping a race a little bit longer to understand that uh, what what was the cause of the movement? Has he benefited out of it? Is he leading the race or is he at the back of the race? And then if he is at the back of the race, you can let it run and then you can still penalise him with a warning afterwards. But um, um, I think um, a lot of referees have changed the way that they've done it before. If you saw anybody move at the start, you used to hit the red straight away. But I think now they, they give a sort of a delayed sort of decision process to ensure that um, if somebody has moved that if he has gained uh, an advantage then you stop the race and if not you let the race continue you're listening to humans of speedway welcome along i'm ian brannan my guest in this episode is chris derno british speedway referee also involved in the fim and we're at the section now where we're going to do speedway paradise which if you will it's a bit like desert island discs 
but with a bit more shale. And we ask our guests to come up with their dream speedway meeting, really, picking the perfect venue, the perfect track for the racing, and who would take part in that meeting as well. So, Chris, over to you. We're going to start designing this dream meeting of yours right now. First of all, though, which track would you choose purely for the racing? Any track you like. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think I'd have to... I'll, I'll give you two answers to this. I, I don't think I'd have to travel too far to start with because I think the new the new Bellevue race track is... I think it is fantastic. Um, I know when they were leading up to build the, the new track uh, up at Manchester, uh, Chris Morton and the promotional team, they, they travelled all over the world to look at uh, what they thought was sort of, sort of best stadiums and best racetracks and, and try to incorporate that. And uh, I really find um, the Bellevue racetrack a, a spectacular racetrack. Um, it's almost, I don't want to... Uh, sort of, um, sort of take my next visit there, but it is quite easy to to referee at because it's so big and so wide. The racing lines that the riders have got, it's very rare you'll see a rider fall and go into the fence. It's it's so so sort of wide there, and and even as a referee, it's one of the tracks you can really admire the racing on. You get a good view from that box. You've got the best view in the stadium, and sort of the racing lines that they can pull there is is amazing. So. Um, that track is, is is excellent, and the other one I'd throw in, I think um, nobody's probably even heard of, but two years ago I went to a, a track in Hungary, uh, Nagy Halas, uh, in the middle of nowhere, a tiny village, but it was one of those occasions you sometimes walk into a stadium and you look at the track and you just get a feel for it, the shape of it, the sort of banking. And uh, that was one of those days. And uh, the meeting I, I saw there, I think it was an SEC challenge, was just tremendous racing. So. Yeah, I think if there's if there's some thought gone into the track and there's some sort of um, uh, banking involved with it, I think you get good racing. But I think we are blessed in the UK with um, the Bellevue track. I think it is amazing. And it's an interesting point you make because obviously you are working, you're running the Speedway meeting, you're the referee. But as a neutral Speedway fan, it's great that you can appreciate good racing when you see it as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 when you were a fan, you know, you'd, you'd be on the terraces and you're more like, like, get in there, get stuck in, knock him off, have him. In the, in the referee's box, you are completely the polar opposite. You are like, stay away from him. Don't get close. Come on, please stay away. <laughs> so uh, you have a, a different viewpoint as, as a referee, but you, you still do. You know, there are occasions when uh, a race is, is sort of finished, you'll, you'll turn to the announcer and you'll just say, that was just amazing, incredible race. You, you know, you are signing to officiate, but there are times when you, you can just admire sort of the, the racing that you've been witness to. So you've chosen the track that they'd race on, but which stadium would those tracks possibly go in, do you think? Oh, yeah, OK. Again, a couple of hours. If I could go back in time, the old Wembley. Um, I, yeah, I was fortunate. It gets a lot of votes. <laughs> yeah, if I was of an age, I was of an age. I did get to see the 1978 and the incredible 1981 final, but that place no longer exists. Um, I'm a big admirer of sort of the stadiums that have been fortunate to build in Poland um, and sort of the atmosphere, but. For me, um, as a speedway stadium, I think um, Togliatti, um, because um, uh, it's not so much as a, a stadium, it's a complete complex. Uh, there are sort of um, uh, workshops in there, schools, fitness centres. Um, it uh, really is a sort of a amazing sort of complex stadium. So if I could put the Bellevue track into Togliatti, 
I think it'd have a winner because um, one of the um, poor restrictions that Togliatti has to deal with is, is they run high speedway there. And so that means that they have to have a sort of a, a flat track surface so they can flood it and freeze it. And so uh, I don't really think the Togliatti race surface is, is of the best racetrack. So, yeah, if I could merge the Bellevue track with Togliatti, that would please me. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we're looking for. Good stuff. Um, and first time that Togliatti's been mentioned, I think, as well. Um, but, um, yeah, Wembley is a popular choice. Um, so your one to seven, then, can be any rider from any era, alive or not, no points limits. It's it's totally down to you. Who'd be in that team? OK, then, uh, um, probably the first person I put in the team is probably the man that possibly made me go to Speedway in the first time because again of my age I used to back in the 70s listen to the old world of sport um, coverage of major meetings and there was the majors the Collins and the Briggs and there was another fellow called Ollie Olsen and uh, he transferred to one of my local tracks Coventry and I think it was sort of um, that name that made me go to my first ever meeting and so um, he really was one of the sports legend uh, he joined Coventry after a dispute from Wolverhampton where he didn't really want to be there. And if anybody looks at his statistics, he didn't score. I think he scored one bonus point in an entire year. He was an individual rider. He came over and was a super um, captain and helping all of the riders and borrowing bikes. So definitely Ollie Olsen. Uh, next, I'd have in my team, um, Thomas Golub. Uh, he was sort of much maligned when we started to get the original Grand Prix. He was always... Um, Commentators used to as a, as treat him as the black villain, but he was an amazing motorcyclist. Some of the things that he did, some of the rides he pulled off um, was just amazing. So I definitely have Thomas Golub in my team. Uh, the next is um, somebody that's still going around and I think everybody talks about, and that's why I'd have him in my team, and that's Nicky Pedersen, uh, a real showman. Uh, when you go to a meeting with Nicky and you usually come back talking about something, um, you know, he's always involved with sort of controversy. He's a very hard rider, but uh, you remember him. And um, I think he's been a, a sort of a fantastic sort of, a, you know, entertainment artist through our sport. Um, I can remember when I refereed him in England, it used to be hearts in your mouth because when Nicky hit that first bend, he just used to go straight across it, straight out to the fence, no matter where anybody else was. But I think overall, he's he's been a superb servant to the sport and he's still riding today. Have you had to have any conversations with him on the phone about uh, about right? Because he's, he's well known for some quite ruthless moves. Yeah, you don't get conversations. You get very sharp, short, shouted messages to yourselves. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 he's, he's a good rider because he, he doesn't sort of carry them grudges because he'll bump into you another time. And that's all forgotten. He, he's always been sort of pleasant. Uh, he'll always shake your hands with you. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I've, I've got no sort of sort of malice against him. I think he's great. And it would have been fantastic for him to be riding in the UK this year. He was due to ride for Sheffield. That would have been a, a major coup. And so I hope Sheffield can find some way of um, keeping him there the next year. Uh, I'd also just mentioned as well, when I mentioned <laughs> Nicky, he had a brother once and uh, I think his brother was even crazier. And uh, I actually used to travel across. He used to ride for um, for, for Peterborough. Um, and uh, again, it must be something in the family, in the DNA, because his, his brother was just as uh, uh, crazy as well. So, yeah. And then uh, following in the team, then I'd, I'd pick a pairing and uh, to ride together um, because the, 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 the Hancock and Hamill partnership, um, I thought, have been fantastic. Real showmanship brought over the American pizzazz. 
um, first came over to sort of Cradley and developed and became, you know, sort of world beaters and then have ridden together Coventry, I think, at Oxford and places um, and real showmanship superstars. Um, uh, I, I've really sort of been fortunate to see them sort of go through their careers start to finish. But th- those two have been absolutely box office for me. Yeah, great on the track and great off the track as well, and especially in the modern world with one of the first sort of really get involved in all the branding and, and, and all that kind of stuff in, in, in the modern way. Um, so I think that's five riders now. Chris, uh, you, you've got two reserve positions left. Who are you going to put in your all-time team then? Uh, Bomber Harris. Uh, again, I, I like racers, absolute racers, and I think that's the only way you can describe Chris Harris. Um, he's, he's done so many things. Um, you know, He's got so many memories for people. Uh, he's a true bulldog. Um, I've got very close. I'm quite friendly with him because he does the long track now. And I was, he asked me to do his um, his, his testimonial, which was a, a nice uh, day for him. So again, Chris Harris. And then my final rider would be a rider going back a long time now when I first started to go was a, an Australian rider at Coventry called Gary Guglielmi. Uh, he was, um, again, very hard, forceful rider. And just when he was on the point of breaking into massive international time, he he had a major discretion where he was caught um, um, taking drugs back into Australia when he went back for the winter and unfortunately saw the end of his career. And I had a very uh, nice um, um, sort of um, um, chance uh, last winter where he made his first visit back to the UK for I think it was 20 plus years since that sort of indiscretion and I was given the chance to sort of interview him he was sort of my favorite uh, rider from sort of uh, my early days and uh, uh, it was amazing emotional evening to go through and he opened up about that uh, those sort of times and those uh, you know what happened and so uh, Gary Gulimi goes into the bottom end of my team. That's a cracking lineup there and, and nice to have some some riders suggested that haven't been mentioned before as well. I think the next question might be the most tricky for you because this is the question where we ask who would referee your meeting? <laughs> well me. <laughs> <laughs> Straightforward why not? No no. Um, no I'm I'm always you know, I understand once the guys get to sort of the international FIM level, that that really is a level of sort of uh, pressure. Um, you know, people may have memories of good referees from beyond, but they, they don't deal what uh, modern referees deal with, with TV coverage and replays and especially social media. You know, everybody's got an opinion on every decision. So what the modern referees are going through today, you know, everything they do is analysed, scrutinised and commented on. So I know um, the guys that are sort of doing that sort of the FIM level. So for me, um, I've always thought um, Krista Gardell, um, he's uh, he's in his final year this year. This is uh, he's reaching 55, and he's just got a calmness, a mannerism, um, well respected by the riders. Um, but then again, I, I I always have to say, you know, there are two referees on the FM, Craig Ackroyd and Christina Turnbull. Uh, they're at that level. I've got a, a great deal of admiration. So, yeah, Chris Gardell, I'd have to referee the meeting. Yeah, an outstanding referee for sure, and uh, will be missed when he perhaps drops down from the uh, from the GPs. Another tricky question for a referee then, if you're going to change one rule of the sport, which one would that be? Uh, I think, I think, you know, I I, I see and talk to a lot of supporters and I listen to supporters. And I think one thing we've got to work on and improve, it's sort of um, the starts, um, you know, 
Um, it's the frustration meetings take too long. Uh, there are too many restarts. Uh, if that's one area that I, if we could get some sort of way of defining a better way of um, involved with even starting races, we're dealing with um, start and take technologies that were developed in the 1930s. And we're still using that technology. There's got to be a way where we can ensure better, fairer, more impartial starts. I'd do anything to support that. You know, it is one of our areas that irritates people the most. Um, you know, people trying to get an advantage at the start of the meeting. Um, I'm always watching the speedway from around the world, and uh, I have noticed now that the way that the Polish league is operating at the moment, where I think they've gone some way to. Uh, improve things at the start line where they have the the start marshal with a headset on so the referee's got direct um, contact with him their start marshals seem to have a lot more empowerment um, they ensure that the riders are brought up to the tapes you should be 10 up to a, a maximum of 10 centimeters from the tapes but in realism how many times do you really see that they ensure that they are lined up um, totally perpendicular to the tapes. Uh, the tapes are, say, are a correct height. There are too many tracks in the UK where the bottom tape, they can almost push the front of the wheel underneath before they even touch the tapes. And so I think what Poland's doing, you know, it only takes another five, 10 seconds after sort of the, the clock zero down um, that that start marshal's told by the referee, go to gate three, pull him in, go to two, go back to one, you know, and that little bit of extra time pays dividends because I think we're getting less reruns in Poland now down to that sort of uh, working combined team with the um, start marshal and the referee being in communication. And there's, there's no reason that that can't happen either, because it's very easy to, to sort that out, isn't it, in this day and age? Well, it is. It, it is cost. I appreciate to the promoters it is some sort of cost. And also across the world now, every meeting you see everywhere seems to have a two-minute clock, but we still don't operate a two-minute clock in the UK. Um, and, um, you know, even our rule says at the moment we don't really have a two-minute um, time allowance because our, our UK rule says the rider has two minutes once he's in the uh, direction of the of the race, you know, so that means they can come out of the pits at one minute, 58 seconds, and then we have to watch them slowly trawl around the track and then go and pull up to the line, choose the route he wants, digs it. So effectively, our, our two minutes can be anything from three to four minutes. And if we got a clock on the line, the riders know that's when it is, the fans can see it, and that, you know, that will bring um, slicker, cleaner meetings. Um, but again, it's got an expense attached to it that the promoters have to take. And so I'd like to you know, see those sort of bits of expense done so um, we can get fewer restarts and you know, that way we can get quicker meetings. And the final big question really is, um, who would be the opposition for your all-star team? Who do you think is going to put up the best fight, get everybody off their seats and provide the entertainment? Uh, you always think of, um, you know, champions and things like this. And the, the, the team that I came up with was um, uh, Ipswich 1998. Because if we go back, um, that was the year when, well, it shows the difference in the team strengths nowadays, because Ipswich were able to put a team together with Tony Rickardson, Thomas Golub, Chris Louie. They got uh, a rising star, Scott Nichols. I think it was Fab and Clouton at the bottom end. You know, but that was a an amazing top end. Um, um, it, uh, it was through, I think, Magda Louie got the contact with Golub to be able to bring him over. He was a major sort of name and uh, draw for all the crowds and they went through the year i'm sure they were like um, uh, league and cup champions 
and fortunately it was 1998 and Sky TV didn't start until 1999 so um, <laughs> that wasn't captured on the TV but I always remember that side you know with the top end of uh, Ricards and Golub and Louis was just an amazing team. And it sounds like an amazing meeting you've put together as well. Thanks for taking part in our Speedway paradise there. Chris Derno on Humans of Speedway. And good luck when you get back in the box. You're saying that's coming very, very soon. Obviously, we're not sure what's uh, going to pan out exactly between now and the end of this season, but it looks like 2021 before uh, we're all going to be heading back to the track for the majority of us. And uh, you must be looking forward to that. Yeah, and I hope for all the fans as well that we get some form of a speedway, um, you know, before we finish this year. And then hopefully we get some sort of normality next year. And then hopefully I'd love to see our sport get a boost. Um, we can see the potential when we look across the Polish league, what is possible. It's the same product. And, and if we do things right and in the right way, we can really get this sport going again. My thanks to Chris Derno there for letting us inside the mind and the box of the referee. Uh, in this episode of Humans of Speedway. Thanks to you as well for listening. If you haven't checked out all the other previous episodes yet, then that's something you can do at your leisure. Um, Scott Nichols, Nigel Pearson, Speedway author Jeff Scott, promoter Neil Machin, Peter Oakes, and um, a hero of so many clubs in Britain, Shane Parker, all featured as part of the series. Don't forget, too, to leave us a rating, and you can also uh, drop us a little review on whichever app you're using. And if you've got any questions, you can contact us on our social media pages as well, at Speedway Humans on Twitter and on Facebook. Just search for Humans of Speedway. We'll also share any clips of uh, upcoming episodes and uh, things like that on there as well, and you can ask questions sometimes ahead of the recording. So uh, make sure you follow those social accounts too to get involved it'd be great to hear from you and until next time stay safe and see you soon on humans of speedway sports social podcast network Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.